0: Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff.
2: This is a CBC Podcast.
3: A highway in Texas is covered in
0: orange haze as drivers speed to safety escaping a fast-spreading wildfire.
3: The scenes from Texas are frightening and familiar. The state is grappling with the biggest wildfire in its history. Meanwhile, in Alberta, the worry has begun.
2: We're declaring an early start to the 2024 wildfire
3: season. And in British Columbia, some fires from last year are still haunting the province. Well, smoky skies in northern B.C. are being attributed to zombie or holdover fires. So are we living in a world where fire season never ends?
2: I think we're in the beginning stages. And folks in Australia and Southern California are already living this reality and have been for really most of this century. But it's new to us up north and this is what it looks like. My name's John Valiant. I'm a journalist and author based in Vancouver, and I'm the author, most recently, of Fire Weather, The Making of a Beast.
3: And I'm Laura Lynch. You're listening to What on Earth? where we bring you a world of climate solutions. On the show today, we're talking about whether we can prevent a world with fire all the time. And as fire season becomes longer and more extreme, we'll hear what people are doing to make sure their communities and the forests around them are prepared. John Valiant, welcome.
2: Thanks. So good to be here.
3: So, wildfire evacuations in Texas, zombie fires burning in BC, Alberta's wildfire season is, as we heard, underway. What's going through your mind as you see all of this unfolding?
2: Well, it's, I think it's one thing to think about intellectually, like this could happen and all the climate science points to it happening. It's another thing when you actually see it unfolding in front of your eyes. And that's what's happening to citizens all over North America right now. They're seeing this new fire reality out their windows, on the road, uh, in the news – and it's really shocking. And you can you can talk about it all you want, but when it's in your face like it is today for so many uh, Canadians and Texans now, um, it's another thing altogether. And it, and it really um, is going to require a, a whole new relationship to our landscapes, uh, to our fire departments and, of course, to fire.
3: I should get you to respond to this idea that fire season is actually year-round in Texas already, and January to May is the most extreme. So what is the difference now?
2: Sure. Uh, across the high plains, really from Montana all the way down to Texas, you know, the prairie states, winter fires are not uncommon. Uh, there's low precipitation there historically. You have a lot of dry grass, so you have these very fast-moving, very low level fires, which is what's burning right now in Texas, except it's amped up by 50 mile an hour winds. It's amped up by higher than average temperatures. It's amped up by drier than average fuels. And so all it's like all the knobs have been tweaked in ways that enhance fires explosiveness. And so you have what you have an, a circumstance that is normal that is uh, not even uncommon, but because of these tweaks in temperature and dryness and these weather extremes, you know, high winds, uh, you can blow something up into something much bigger and more powerful.
3: All right. Let, let's come back to Alberta then, because as we know, the Alberta government declared the start of wildfire season 10 days earlier than usual. Is it a, is it a good thing to do that? Is, is the province being proactive, preparing early?
2: It is proactive and it's an, it's an honest thing to do. And I think it's, you know, you're trying to prepare not just fire departments, which are not ready, uh, but you're also trying to prepare the public who is still thinking about winter and and actually wondering where did winter go. And something we need to keep in mind, though, if you're a historian of fire and of fire seasons, the Alberta fire season used to start on April 1st. So that this is a 21st century change. For the past 15 or 20 years, it's been March 1st. Now it's mid-February. And this uh, you know could be foreseen if you looked at fire regime change in Southern California and Australia. That is our fate, too. We're just arriving a little bit later.
3: Fire regime change. Yeah. That's quite a phrase. Yes. What do you mean by that?
2: It is a radical change in systemic behavior and it could be you could it could be around ocean currents or it could be around wind patterns it could be around rainfall but it what it implies is a large and probably permanent shift in the behavior of a very important system somewhere and, on Earth. And
3: also, I suppose, an involuntary takeover in some ways. People didn't ask for this.
2: Nobody asked for it. and and But people did see it coming, and people have uh, issued warnings really going back many decades now.
3: Now, Alberta's Forestry and Parks Minister Todd Lewin says the province is hiring 100 new firefighters on top of the 900 who are expected to be ready by April the 15th. Does that sound adequate to you?
2: Alberta's huge, and it's very flammable, even at the best of times. And and this, frankly, isn't the best of times. It's really one of the worst of times. Alberta's in stage four drought right now. A lot of people close to, you know, who are on the water file, if you will, are wondering, when are they going to declare stage five, which is essentially a provincial emergency around water? And if you look at the state of reservoirs and rivers across the province, Absolutely shocking images that really look like something out of a desert. So that all informs fire behavior. It's not just the rivers are dry. The soil is dry. The muskeg is dry. And muskeg is like peat, which burns, honestly, like coal. So once the fire gets in there, it can stay in there Indefinitely, as in for years.
3: So, so a thousand new firefighters—is that enough? Or you are you saying you need more broad-based planning for I, all I, of this? I think it's
2: it's going to be a multi-pronged approach. Uh, I think a thousand firefighters is a start. My guess is uh, we're at the in the second uh, half of an, an El Nino cycle. Uh, May 2016 was the second half of an El Nino cycle, and that's when the Fort McMurray fire uh, broke out, and we needed a lot more than a thousand firefighters for that.
3: I was going to ask you, the, the, so the, the Fort McMurray fire is the one that you based your, your book fire weather on. How much does this year remind you of that year?
2: It's, it's the same scenario, but worse. I'm really sorry to say that. Uh, the, the the water levels weren't nearly as low uh, and we've also had another almost decade of steady drying and precipitation change and so there's the, again this is part of this regime change there's just less precipitation and more heat so even the precipitation that lands whether as snow or rain is going to evaporate more quickly because of elevated temperatures you know it's it the way to think about it in a way is really like your own laundry out on the line. On a, on a damp day like today in Vancouver, your laundry is never going to dry. On a hot, sunny day or during the heat dome, your bed sheet would be dry in 15 minutes. And that's going to happen to the forest and the grasslands in Alberta and also in B.C. too. We're going to have that same kind of rapid drying.
3: Right. I was going to ask you about lessons that can be learned from last year's record-breaking yeah. wildfire yeah. season, not just in Alberta, but B.C., North Northwest Territories, Nova yes. Scotia. Yes. What lessons were learned that could be applied this year?
2: Uh, I think we need, as as citizens, as communities, municipalities, but also as provinces and as a nation, to to develop a much closer relationship to our firefighters, uh, whose job it is twenty four seven to keep our particular, their particular location free of fire. And so these are folks who know their regions very well, you know, whether it's Halifax or whether it's Calgary. And there's an amazing fire smart program that's nationwide. You know, it's, it's online, but it's also uh, practiced by uh, local fire departments who will come to your house, will come to your neighborhood, look at your yard, look at the layout of your cul-de-sac, and point out the trouble spots. There's a lot of low-hanging fruit that doesn't cost much to change. You know, it might be as simple as moving that brush pile away from your wooden porch. It might be as simple as that. It might be as simple as cleaning your gutters, getting the dead leaves out of your gutters. A lot of houses burn down for... For simple reasons like that, an ember lands in the gutter, it gets into the soffit, and the house is gone. That's how a lot of houses in Fort McMurray burned. And, pres- uh,
3: and prescribed burns, would that help at all?
2: Absolutely, yeah. And, and, you know, you do hear stories of prescribed burns getting away. There was a really unfortunate situation in Swap Lake here in B.C. just this past summer that was, you know, a really dangerous and destructive situation. But in general... Uh, they talk about good fire, good fire on the landscape. And this, you know, really dates back to indigenous uh, burning practices, which were totally suppressed, you know, after colonization. And then also after World War II, you know, post-war fire suppression improved enormously. And so as a result, those kind of small house cleaning fires, if you will, uh, weren't allowed to happen. And so now you have this massive buildup in fuel combined with increased heat, combined with a lot of beetle kill, combined with a lengthening fire season. So it's really a quadruple whammy that makes our forests much more volatile.
3: There's been talk of creating a national firefighting force. I'm wondering what resources would be needed to create such a force, how effective you think it could be?
2: I think it could be really effective uh, because already – the Canadian forces are brought in for, for disastrous fires. They helped out a lot uh, in Fort McMurray. If it was up to me, I think I would start looking at an arm of the Canadian forces uh, and sort of giving them extra training in firefighting. In addition to our, our fire crews you know, uh, that we already have in place in each province, we're, we're going to need to maintain our relationships with neighboring uh, states and countries, and also develop additional resources, and you know one of the the side effects of these intensifying fire seasons is crews that we might be able to borrow from Idaho or California won 't be available to us because they 're going to be fighting their own fires, and the same thing has happened with a lot of firefighting um, Aviation equipment, which used to move across hemispheres depending on the fire season during our winter, these planes would be down in Australia fighting their summer fires, and then they'd move back. But now, again, with this twelve-month fire season, those planes can't leave because they need to stay. They need to stay um, in their own hemisphere, in their own country.
3: Is it too late, John, or are there things that can be done to get Canada to, from becoming a place? where the fire season never ends. Well,
2: you know, the elephant in the living room here is methane and CO2. And, you know, industrial fossil fuel burning, Uh, Canada is one of the biggest emitter per capita on planet Earth. And some of that has to do with our petroleum projects, but, uh, but a lot of it has to do with the fact that, you know, we like big vehicles and Canadians drive long distances. It's a huge country. So reducing CO2 and methane emissions, ASAP is, you know, has to be first and foremost in parallel, I believe, with um, creating a, a safer environment for people to live in.
3: When you wrote that book and published Fire Weather, did you think then that we were going to be where we are now so fast?
2: I didn't I, I knew it was coming, and, and not not because I'm a visionary, because I it's because I listened to climate scientists and I listened to fire scientists. And we talked a lot about Fort McMurray, and you know, they said, you know, as as Dennis Quintilio in Alberta told me, he said the curves are only going one way. And as in up and more fire. And so that's why I focused on that fire because it was kind of a preview. Uh, But I, I don't think any of us thought it would be happening this fast.
3: John Valiant, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much.
2: Oh, so good to be with you, Laura.
3: You heard John talking about how we need to learn lessons from past wildfires as we prepare for what could be a long, hot season ahead. And Molly Siegel, you've been talking with folks in Alberta about that.
4: Yeah, I was. Actually, I was in Alberta a couple weeks ago. And I wanted to zero in on the work that's being done at the community level and right on the ground to get ready.
3: It's interesting it's happening there because I think it's happening in a lot of other places as well, places that experienced that kind of really destructive wildfire. People are looking at just what they can do.
4: Yeah, I think it's on a lot of people's minds right now. And the first story I want to tell you is about a group of Métis citizens who were gathered in Banff from other parts of Alberta, British Columbia, Saskatchewan, and Ontario for a workshop about emergency preparedness. It was organized by the Métis National Council. And I talked to several folks there about what brought them to that workshop. And for many people, it was actually their experiences facing terrible fires like Fort Mac, for example, and other climate-linked disasters that had made them want to learn how to better support their friends, their neighbors, and their communities during the next wildfire season and, of course, you know,
3: future years as well. Right. And in Alberta, we are into wildfire season. So this is very timely. Molly, let's listen.
4: 2016 was Dane D'Souza's fourth season as a wildland firefighter in Alberta. He says it was good money for a summer job to pay for school.
5: And I was on a fantastic crew that year.
4: He remembers the camaraderie was good. And finding fires had been, at least to this point, thrilling.
5: There's an excitement in the vehicle as you're driving up and, you know, you got the tunes going and, you know, okay we're going to go up there and we're going to go be on a big fire and we're going to you know, make good money and it's going to be wild and we have some crazy stories and, you know, you're just, it's, it's very exciting.
4: But in that month, May 2016, things were different.
5: The fire just outside Fort McMurray has reached the point where officials believe it will hit its peak today. And I remember as soon as we hit the city limits, that excitement and that energy in the truck just completely changed.
4: Fort McMurray was abandoned and filled with smoke.
5: Oh my God, like what's happening here? You know, your brain can't process it.
4: Dane took a season off, but he went on to fight wildfires in 2018 and 2019 as well. His experiences as a wildland firefighter prompted him to return to school to make bigger changes.
5: Uh, My name is Dane D'Souza. I am the Climate Change and Emergency Management Policy Advisor for the Métis National Council and a citizen of the Métis Nation of Alberta. My Métis family names are Sutherland and Sinclair from the Selkirk area of the Red River Valley.
4: And all of his time fighting wildfires, in a way, is why Dane is here today at a conference center in Banff, Alberta, coordinating workshops on how to respond to incidents and how to manage emergencies.
5: This is an opportunity for us to come together this week and start to have a conversation as a sovereign, proud Métis nation and how we're going to build emergency management and resiliency for us in a way that not only honours our culture, our tradition, and our identity.
4: About 30 people are here for the workshops, and the stakes couldn't be higher.
6: This year is the first year of my entire life living in Alberta, where I noticed we almost didn't get any snow, so I'm like, okay... I'm really concerned about what's going to be happening. My name is Andrea Pru, and I'm from here in Alberta, Edmonton, Alberta, and I'm a citizen of the Métis Nation of Alberta.
4: The Fort McMurray fire of 2016 also prompted a change for Andrea. She was an environmental consultant at the time in Fort McMurray to look at post-flood issues in homes.
6: The only way to explain of what that was like, it was like post-apocalyptic I've never seen anything else like that before. Um, there was no running water. Everything was closed. Like there was nobody. So it was, it was devastating to see something like that.
4: She says this led her on a journey to become more involved in her community. Now, years later, she's a health and safety advisor at Métis Housing that has 900 homes across Alberta. So she plans to take what she learns here back with her.
1: I'm Lucas Hevert. By trade, I work in uh, construction management, and I'm here from the Okanagan. People use the term, the new norm, and I I don't want to sit down and take it. I don't like that. So I want to help out where I can, and I feel like this conference will set me up um, in the path to help people.
4: In 2018, Lucas was living in Maple Ridge, east of Vancouver. It was a bad summer for wildfires in B.C.,
6: Last night, 50-kilometer-an-hour winds drove flames down a steep slope south of Coston, and a spark from the snowy mountain fire jumped to the east side of the
1: Similkameen River. The wildfires of 2018 were devastating and I felt helpless, so I really wanted to get involved.
4: It prompted him to start volunteering for the Red Cross. And since then, he's responded to both floods and fires. So being at this workshop is part of how he wants to make a difference where he lives now, in Penticton, in B.C.'s wine region that's been hit hard by wildfires.
1: I want to come away with this with a general understanding of how uh, emergency management fits within our Métis nation. I want to learn ways that I can contribute to my community in prevention and also in readiness. Wildfires are never planned, and uh, neither are floods, so the more we can be prepared for it as a community. Hopefully it'll be less impactful for us.
6: My name is Bobby Paula Palaluk. I am a citizen's representative with the Otipimswek Métis government for the Fort Vermilion Métis district, 15, and I am also the secretary for health and seniors within that government. I am attending this workshop this week more as just a Métis citizen from my community um, so that I can I can help my community.
4: Northern Alberta is no stranger to climate-linked events. In 2019, there was a significant flood in Bobby's community. And then wildfires.
6: Two major fires, both causing, um, thankfully, no loss of life, but loss of property damage, really for rural Alberta, large-scale evacuations. And these events would ripple out into the
4: community, she says.
6: Fort Vermilion is a Métis community, largely Indigenous population, Métis and First Nations. You know, as a result of Canada's colonial history, we have a lot of struggles and issues and barriers that we're facing on a regular day-to-day basis. And so when tragedy strikes, when disaster strikes, when a major flood happens, all of those things become aggravated.
4: Dane D'Souza says how a community is evacuated during a disaster like a wildfire can actually cause harm.
5: When you do have evacuations and things like that that occur and they're done in a way that is culturally unsafe. And I, you know, to give an example, things like evacuating residential school survivors to a residential school, things of that nature.
4: Dane says having these skills and this training from within a Métis community can actually help mitigate the harm that can happen when people from outside make the decisions. Taking more leadership during disaster response is something many Indigenous communities are doing right now.
6: We are best suited to engage with them, to talk to them, to know what their needs are. Sometimes it's not taken so well when a police officer or a firefighter or somebody comes in and says, you need to leave your home and you need to leave it now. And part of that is because of the distrust and the mistreatment that people have endured over the years.
5: Somebody from this training, maybe they'll be on an incident and and you'll be in that incident command center and things are hectic as can be and you know maybe if that person's in that room that day and goes, Hey, you know what? If you send these folks here, you're exposing them to this risk better off we send them here. Or, you know what, I actually know the community elder. We can get in touch with the elder and they'll be able to connect with the community in such a way that we can can find evacuations, things like that.
6: It's very, very important that our own people are taking these types of training, getting involved, because we are in the best position to be able to support our people.
4: Bobby says something else that could help is a bill that's making its way through the House of Commons. Called Bill C-53, it would help recognize the Métis governments in Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Ontario. And for her, that is key to her community taking charge in responding to wildfires and other emergencies. And this season, being ready is more important than ever.
6: We were already in a drought, and we had even less precipitation in 2023, so we are going into an even worse drought. We're looking at a catastrophic wildfire season, potentially, I would say likely. So something like this hopefully will prepare myself anyways to be a better resource to my community.
3: Hi, I'm Sandra Bartlett. I produced the Salmon People podcast about the fight to save wild salmon. Now I'm back with The Poison Detectives, a podcast about a nasty chemical that's poisoning the world. Yes, poisoning the world. It's a man-made chemical family called PFAS, and there are more than 12,000 chemicals in this family. It's in the material that firefighting suits are made from, and one woman went on a quest to find out if it gave her firefighter husband cancer. I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth, where we bring you a world of climate solutions. And Molly Siegel has been bringing us stories of how people are preparing for this year's wildfire season, a season that's already begun in Alberta. Now, we just heard from people
4: gathered for a workshop focused on how to respond to incidents and manage emergencies in communities. It was run by the Métis National Council. And it was actually Jane Park who was
3: there teaching one of the two courses. And I remember Jane Park with Banff National Park because I spoke to her last year.
4: Yes. Yeah. She's the fire and vegetation specialist for the Banff Field Unit for Parks Canada in Banff National Park. And she's also an incident commander. So she's the one who kind of sets up the response to wildfires. And I met up with her in Banff to chat about how she and her team are preparing for the upcoming season of wildfires.
3: Two things going on there. I hear you squeaking through snow, but I also hear a fire crackling.
4: Yeah, yeah, there was. So uh, there was snow. Yes, there was snow on the ground. But where we stopped to chat, um, there were like clusters of what looked like campfires
0: at the back end of the Banff Administration Grounds in the Cascade Gardens in Banff, um, where our fire crews have been working all winter to reduce fuel around the community. Around me you can see some forested area, and it's been thinned, and you can see piles of wood um, and the remnants of some burn piles, and some of them are still burning and smoking. Banff is a community that kind of lies in a landscape that is heavily forested, like a lot of communities within Canada. There are these patches of forest that kind of run into town, and those represent kind of wicks of fuel that potentially, in the event of a wildfire, could bring wildfire right into town, right adjacent to houses, and you can see through the woods, you can see the houses that are right close by. So through the winter, um, after the fire season is over, our fire crews... Uh, work all winter to thin the forest uh, adjacent to the community to reduce the amount of vegetation and fuel for wildfires um, to better protect the community.
4: I, I think more people are coming, becoming accustomed to some of the terms, like we hear planned ignition, controlled burn, prescribed fire. Can you just define for me how you and, and Parks Canada define that term and
0: what term you use? You know, planned ignitions can come during wildfires or they can be related to prescribed fires. Um, we use the term prescribed fire, which is basically a fire that is lit under specific conditions, that has a specific plan and um, level of resourcing. And so that's what we do in terms of restoring fire to the landscape or creating uh, fuel breaks.
4: You know, it seems kind of funny to be talking about wildfire right now because it's there's snow on the ground, you know, it's, it's cool out. What work do you and, and your crew do here in Banff National Park between
0: wildfire seasons. It's a lot of this type of work to reduce fuel around the community. What we're trying to build is a more resilient landscape to wildfire. And so our crews are generally on uh, year-round, working on these fuel reduction projects. We often have other contract crews assisting in other locations or sometimes we even have larger projects where it's mechanical thinning and we're working um, on kind of landscape fuel breaks. Uh, the folks that are in the office are working on uh, planning wildfire risk reduction projects, including prescribed fires and other thinning projects for next year. Fire season is going to come up pretty soon. So we're already starting to, you know, hire for next year. So we have enough firefighters. We're reviewing a lot of our preparedness plans. We're, you know, checking all our systems, um, making sure all our equipment's working right. We're, we're getting ready for the fire season because very quickly um, it'll be here. Fire seasons are getting longer, so they're starting earlier and ending later. Um, And we're getting a lot more periods of drought throughout the summer. And so we have longer periods of high and extreme fire danger. Um, And with that comes wildfires. So we're seeing that change over time and and increase over time.
4: How is that affecting everything that that you and your colleagues are trying to get done between wildfire seasons?
0: Yeah, I think it's, I mean, uh, the big challenge is... You know, a lot of people are getting burnt out, no pun intended, you know. Uh, We had a really long and hard fire season and people were very fatigued at the end of the season. People had multiple deployments to very large and challenging wildfires. Um, There were a lot of evacuations and really kind of emotional and and mental health kind of challenging type situations and so we have to make sure that while we need to get a lot of this work done in the winter that folks are rested and well prepared for the season that's coming up so um, I think it is getting more challenging we have a smaller window in the winter to get a lot of work done Um, and then you know This year, the snowpack's pretty low. A lot of places in Canada are experiencing drought, which makes it much harder to do this type of work because the fire season's going to come sooner.
4: As we're experiencing drought conditions in Western Canada and, you know, as the wildfire season itself um, continues to, to change with climate change,
0: is the role of prescribed fire changing I think that um, it's becoming evident through science that prescribed fire is one of many tools that's needed across the landscape. And for many, many years, um, many agencies moved away from it and were very suppression-based. And so um, they really have to start getting to a lot of the, using a lot of the different tools, which includes thinning, includes prescribed fire, um, includes indigenous cultural burning. If you're prescribing fires, how does it help manage wildfire? Yeah, so if you can imagine... Go back a hundred years um, but prior to when we suppressed fire across the landscape our landscapes used to be very heterogeneous so really a mixed bag of grasslands and deciduous forests and there still were coniferous forests um, and it was very diverse and when a fire would burn in that type of landscape or maybe there was a burn patch of something that had burned in the past um the fire would burn to a certain point and then maybe it would hit like a deciduous stand and hang up there and slow down or um, maybe it would hit an area that had already burnt a few years prior and stop. Um, When you remove fire from the landscape, whether that's because um, indigenous people were were removed from the, the landscape or because of active fire suppression, the forest becomes much more Um, homogeneous and so you have this blanket of often in western Canada coniferous trees which are super flammable and so when a wildfire does come it can spread much further become much larger you know gather much more intensity and have many more negative impacts um, than they would have in the kind of pre-suppression landscape. Laura
4: you remember last year when we talked to Jane Park Banff National Park was actually running a prescribed fire just on the edge of town.
3: Yeah, I do remember it. And I remember it because it made news when it spread further than they thought it was going to.
4: Yeah, it did. And people were evacuated from a resort and a nearby venue just as a precaution. But it all raised some questions. Are these fires safe to have near where people live? There was an independent review into what happened. One of the findings was that there weren't enough briefings for crews and not enough information shared with the public. I asked Jane about the review.
0: We're constantly reviewing our processes and things that we have in place to make sure that we're as effective and as safe as possible. And so we are, you know, reviewing all of our existing plans, looking at our units in the context of climate change and looking at these longer fire seasons. What does that mean in terms of the types of conditions we need for prescribed fires? You know, what is the preparation on the sites that we need to do? Um, Looking at boundaries of prescribed fires, things like that.
3: That's interesting to hear. Molly, thank you for bringing us the stories from Bemp. You're welcome, Laura. And as you heard, there is a lot of work to do in the ever-shortening downtime between wildfire seasons, and there's a real risk of firefighters getting burned out.
0: There's not enough lookout towers being manned in this province to make sure that we're catching these fires before they become out of control. Now you're, you're chasing your tail. Uh, literally, you're you're coming up from behind. and That has a mental deficit, a real psychological impact on those that have to go out and, and, and do this every day. It is hard, laborious work to fight wildfires in this province.
3: That's Bonnie Gastola. She speaks for the Alberta Union of Provincial Employees. Even though the province announced the start of the wildfire season earlier than usual, Bonnie says new fires have already sprung up since the beginning of the year. And the government is late to the game.
0: They were already behind even two weeks before they made their announcement. Uh, We were raising alarms that we were already fighting wildfires in Alberta uh, and that uh, this province wasn't ready for what's coming.
3: But Alberta's Forestry and Parks Minister Todd Lowen told CBC fire crews are prepared.
2: We have our fire attack crews that come back year after year, and uh, so a lot of the firefighters that we have on the ground this spring will be experienced uh, firefighters. We do, of course, uh, ask for uh, new recruits to come in, and we've actively been doing that, and we've had actually a record number of applicants this year,
0: so we're actually in really good shape this year as far as uh, keeping our previous firefighters coming back, but also recruiting new firefighters.
3: So, we've been talking about wildfire in Alberta today, since the season there has already started. But wildfire risk is on the minds of people all around the country. The government of Yellowknife has used money from the city budget to update communication systems and hire an emergency manager. Last year, a mandatory evacuation kept Yellowknife residents out of their homes for three weeks. In Nova Scotia, Halifax Regional Municipality has created two new emergency exits for subdivisions and is considering creating more. The bottleneck caused by residents fleeing a wildfire in Upper Tantallon last May shone a spotlight on the problem of communities with limited escape routes. And in British Columbia, Premier David Eby says he's profoundly worried about what he says could be a terrible wildfire season. The province has set aside $10.6 billion in contingency funds in this year's budget to deal with potential disasters. But West Kelowna's Fire Chief Jason Brolin says his community and others need more money for fire prevention.
1: If first responders like firefighters and, and police officers are expected to be the first responders to a changing climate like we were this summer, it's too late. Um, we are spending the money on the wrong end of the problem when we do that. I'm a huge believer in mitigation and prevention.
3: And of course, we'll continue to bring you much more on wildfire in the coming weeks and months. And we've got time now for a couple of other climate stories in the news this week. Canada's biggest pension funds are trailing behind similar funds in other countries when it comes to moving away from fossil fuel investments. That's according to a new study from the advocacy group Shift Action for Pension Wealth and Planet Health. The report found some progress since last year, but it found that pension fund managers lag behind in Canada when it comes to climate commitments. The report highlights New York City pension funds, as well as those in France and the Netherlands, as doing more to be transparent with investments. It also says seven of the eleven pension funds it studied have at least one director or trustee who is also the director or executive of a fossil fuel company. Homeowners in a suburb of Montreal are taking aim at a decision by a credit union to stop providing mortgages for people in some flood zones. Desjardins says the risk is too great to offer mortgages to homes that have a 5% or more chance of flooding each year. Parts of Ile-Bezard, jean were flooded in 2017 and again in 2019. Some residents worry the move will lead to their homes losing value. They want the credit union to offer loans for preventative measures such as embankments. Desjardins says the impacts of climate change are growing and causing substantial damage. Republicans in the state of Florida want to block cities and counties from requiring both water and shade breaks for outdoor workers. Last year, at least two farmers died in South Florida in extreme heat. They include a 28-year-old on his first day harvesting vegetables. Republicans argue offering such protections for workers would hurt the economy, even as extreme heat threatens workers' health. The potential law is part of a nationwide battle between state and local governments over who should be allowed to issue workplace heat safety regulations. Texas already places limits on local governments' ability to issue heat safety regulations. I wanna let you know now about a story that we're working on for next week.
0: We will make a significant difference in climate change immediately.
2: We can change the course of global warming in our lifetime.
3: We know exactly what we need to do to solve the climate crisis. So those are big promises, right? They're coming from a video showcasing plans to send a satellite into space on Monday. It's a satellite specifically designed to detect in greater detail than ever before where methane is leaking from oil and gas installations. Here's something else unprecedented about it. The Environmental Defense Fund, in partnership with Google, are behind the space shot. The plan is to map global methane emissions from space, and the data will be available to those who want it instead of being controlled by government or industry. We'll have more on the mission and its promises next week. Now remember, you can listen to all of our episodes on demand at CBC Listen, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, leave us a review. We do read them, I promise you. That is all for us this week, though. The show was put together by Vivian Luck, Rachel Sanders, Molly Siegel, Missy Johnson, Matthias Wolfson, and Catherine Rolfson. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening.